Our text isn't any easier this morning. It actually comes from Hebrews 12. Um, Paul is away. He'll be, he'll be back here next week to see Jerem Bars, but, but he's away this week in Raleigh visiting his, um, his son uh, who went off to college. The title for this morning's sermon is The Next Step, Suffering. Uh, the text is uh, from Hebrews chapter 12. You'll need to turn there. We'll be going back into it uh, frequently during the sermon. And as you know, uh, this is the last of the series of Next Step, and this is the one that uh, very few of us ever take on our own. Uh, sometimes we do. Sometimes we take steps purposely or intentionally into suffering, uh, but very rarely do we ever do that. Oftentimes it happens to us, and oftentimes it happens to us by surprise. So sometimes we know, very often we don't. Uh, and sometimes we plan for it to happen, and very often, most of the time, we don't. Well, where is it in life that we would plan to suffer? Like, you would say to yourself, okay, in the next 13 weeks, I'm going to put myself in the place of suffering. I- I'm, I'm going to put myself in a place that's very difficult socially, physically, and I want to do this. Where in life do we ever do that? And one of the answers is a 13-week program that the Marines have called boot camp. Now, several of us in the congregation have actually decided to do that in our lives at one point or another. Uh, And you can stand up and you can give a testimony about how difficult uh, boot camp is, either for the Army, Navy, uh, Marines, and I hear not so much for the Air Force. but, (laughs) But certainly for the Marines, it's probably one of the most strenuous 13 weeks of your life. I, that's what I've heard. And, and I've, I've watched a couple of documentaries. I've never been to boot camp, but I've watched a couple of documentaries, and that's about as close as I ever want to get to a boot camp experience. My, my dad and I had a conversation about this, and uh, he, he went to boot camp when he was, I guess you were about my age or maybe a little younger, <laughs> a lot younger, actually. Um, he was in his 20s, and, uh, you know, he, he went to boot camp because he was in a draft situation. He went there. And he had some hopes and dreams about boot camp. You know, it might give me some discipline. It might uh, help me achieve some things. But, you know, he was in a draft situation. So I, I just, I'm just going to go do this boot camp thing. But a lot of recruits who actually decide to go on their own to boot camp have in their minds that boot camp is going to give them something that's valuable in their life that they can take with them in other parts of, the, of, of life. And a lot of the recruiting practices that the armed forces engage in speak of these very clearly. You remember the mid 1980s slogan from the army, be all that you can be, you can do it in the army. And, and you, you hear the one that's most, um, most recent is, is the one that's called Army Strong. You've heard of strong, and then there's army strong. It's a, you know, it's a, you want to be strong? Come join us. I remember a, a, a commercial of a man standing on a high dive looking down at a pool, and he's looking down at the pool, and he says, I remember the time when I used to be afraid to jump into the water and swim. And then he recalls the drill instructor's voice. Don't give up. If you give up in life, you'll give up the rest of your life. And he remembers that encouragement, and then the commercial shows him, jump off into the water. Not afraid. The army says it could build up your resume. Marines say they could give you skills that you can use in all kinds of, of different jobs. So these young 18, 19, 20-year-olds come into boot camp with this in their mind. And it is intense. First thing they do is they rush you off the bus. 
in the Marine Corps. They, they, they don't just walk you off. They rush you off the bus and they make you stand on the famous yellow footsteps so that you create some kind of a line, you know, and you're standing straight. And from that point for 13 weeks, you're, you're getting yelled at. They shave your head. They strip you of your identity. They take away food and comfort. Everything that you think is necessary, they take it all away from you. And then, then, then they just put you through the most physical, uh, the strenuous physical and social and emotional mental training for, for 13 weeks. And a lot of times people feel like giving up. I just, I don't want to do this anymore. But at, as you know, many people come out of it and they come out of it a little better than they went in, a lot better than they went in. They come out, my dad said he gained uh, 20 some odd pounds and he was just, you know, it was like a muscle man, kind of like, like his son. Um, <laughs> Apple does not fall far, I think. Maybe. <laughs> but, but look, I don't want this, right? I mean, I don't want this suffering. And so today in our text, we're looking at suffering that happens to us. Okay, it happens to us. But there's a point when we become a Christian that Christ says, I want you to count the cost. Before you sign up and follow me, count the cost. And some of the things that he says appear happening in Hebrews chapter 12. Well, let's look um, at the suffering in Hebrews chapter 12. This is a, a young church, and the writer is writing them to encourage them. If you've ever read Hebrews, it, it, it's about an hour long from start to end. And it's the kind of book that if you're a young Christian, you haven't suffered a lot, you're, you're just not going to really get. There's a lot to it that you kind of read over and skip through. But the more you live and the older you get and the more you suffer, the more Hebrews becomes a deep, solid book of answers. And so we, we want to read this passage. And for those who are young, you can, you can tuck this in the back of your mind for the day that you do suffer greatly. Uh, and if you've suffered greatly, uh, let this text be medicine for you in some ways. It, it does give us a great perspective. We want to look at a couple of things in this passage, Hebrews chapter 12. First, we want to look at, well, what is the suffering that we see in this, in this book, in this passage? Where does it come from? And what kind of suffering is it? Then secondly, we want to ask the question that all of us have in the back of our minds when we suffer. Is there some kind of design to this? Is there purpose to the suffering that I'm experiencing? Or is it just random, chaotic? You know. So we want to ask those questions. And as we ask those questions, God is going to, is going to tell us through this text uh, of practical things we need to do, whether it's an attitude shift or actually something we need to physically do. And so there's practical application as we look. So first, let's look at uh, the suffering. You'll see uh, the first mention of suffering in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So my mind says, okay, first of all, this church is suffering kind of like Christ because they're supposed to consider Jesus Christ who at the hand of evil sinners suffered from hostility. But look at the suffering described in verse 3. First, it's growing weary. Now think about what that means. Growing means change, right? Weary means tired. So at one point, this church was strong and the people in it were strong and they had deep convictions and they knew the, the gospel and they were excited and then they grew. 
They grew weary. And then they grew a little bit more weary. And then they grew a little bit more weary. And they're now at the point where they're exhausted. What do you do when you're exhausted? You say things like, I cannot go on. I just simply can't stand up. So these Christians were feeling that way. The other word you see at the end of verse 3 is not only that they were growing weary, but they, they were faint-hearted. Now that's different. You see, it's not I can't get up. Faint-hearted means I won't because I've lost my heart. It's gone. What I wanted to do originally, this is week maybe three of boot camp, maybe day two, I don't know. But it's like you, you get into boot camp and you're like, ah, I don't want this. I, whatever goal that Marine Corps might have for me, it doesn't match up with my goal that I have for me. So I, I'm losing heart here. I don't want to do this anymore. Not that I can't do this, but I don't want to do this. So I'm sure in the church there were many people who could go on and many people who didn't want to go on and maybe all of them were both. So that's the suffering. Where did it come from? Where did this suffering come from? If you go back to uh, chapter 11, uh, chapter 11 is, is the famous hall of faith. And I would rather say it is the hall of faith, it's the you know, famous hall of faith, but it's also the hall of suffering. If you look at what's actually happening in the lives of the people described in chapter 11, a lot of it is suffering. Look at the last part of chapter 11. Uh, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms and forced justice. And at this point, your fist is starting to form and you're starting to read it like this, right? <laughs> All of these things are happening. Obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions. And, and it goes on and, and, and look at 35. We're continuing. Women received back their dead by resurrection, period, capital S. Some were tortured. And you're, you all of a sudden, wait a second. <laughs> that's not victory, that's defeat. Some were tortured, hmm. refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. 36, others suffered mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, stoned, sawn in two. This is getting graphic. We just went from PG to R-rated right here. Sawn in two. Just imagine what that looks like. Don't, don't imagine what that looks like. You the, the point here is, it's abundantly clear in this text, the suffering is not cancer, and it's not the hurricanes. It's not nature. It's not sickness. You can't get sawn in two by cancer. You get sawn in two by a person whose evil will opposes you, and you, you, you are the opposite of that, you, you, and you're the object of that, and you get hurt. Verse 3, consider him, Jesus Christ, who at the hands of sinners. We're talking about hostility here. So the church was facing um, hostility and suffering from people. So that's where the suffering was coming from. And the writer of Hebrews has some things to say about that. Not very many, because frankly, that's not the point. He has a few things. Strive for peace with everyone. That's in verse 14. Other places, it says, be peaceable, be peaceful. Don't blame them, right? Why does he say that? And, that, and that's all he says. It, it doesn't seem like a very big point to make. He doesn't say, rise up and fight them to stop this evil that's being done against you. It's kind of like Peter chopping the ear off and Jesus saying, no, no. 
Okay, so where does the suffering really happen? If it doesn't really come from hostile men, it, there's another something else going on here. And we see it as clearly as, as daylight as we read in chapter 12. It'll slap you in the face. And if it doesn't, you're not paying attention. Pay attention. Let's look at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. That's the slap in the face. Wait a second. You mean that the hostility against me from evil men is the same thing as discipline from the Lord? Where's it coming from? It's either men or it's God. Which one is it? And the point of this text is, it's discipline from the Lord. It's both. But it's the one I want to focus on is discipline from God. He, what? What do I say here as a Christian? God is aware. He knows. Okay, well, that, that's good. God allows it to happen. Because we know he's sovereign, but he allows it to happen, right? But that's not exactly what... It says, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. I mean, when I discipline my children, it's not that I don't just allow something bad to happen. I force something bad to happen. Okay, this is where we step back as Christians and we dance because this is a hard truth. This is very difficult, but it is. It's true. And if, if Hebrews 12 was the only place that we found something like God is is using evil men to discipline me, if, we, if this is the only place, then, then I would throw it away and I'd say, I probably just misread it. Or I'd say something like, well, <laughs> we don't even know really who wrote Hebrews. Let's just throw it out of the canon. I don't know, what, whatever. But it's not the only place. Remember in Genesis 37? Remember Genesis 37 was in Joseph and the Coat of Many Colors? It's a great Sunday school story. Joseph rises up as the favorite, you know, and he has his coat of many colors. His brothers hate him. He rubs it in a little bit. And guess what happens next? Joseph gets stripped of his coat, which gets dipped in blood, and then they lie to his father. Then they strip him of his sonship. Then they throw him in a pit. And then they sell him to, or they give him to sell him to slaves. Here you go, take him. And then the slaves give him to someone in Egypt. Then he's in prison, and Potiphar's wife comes along. No, he's not in prison yet, but Potiphar's wife comes along. He resists Potiphar's wife, does some bad lying and mixing and anger things, and whoop, he's in prison. All of a sudden, Joseph's in prison. Now, you know the story from there. He rises to second in command because he can interpret dreams. But the suffering there, who did that? Did his brothers do it? Did Potiphar's wife do it? Did the slave owners do it? Who was, who was the source? What was the source of Joseph's suffering? Well, Joseph gets it when he writes in Genesis chapter 45. I'm going to turn there real quickly. It's a great passage. Uh, you all know the, the one that, that he said, you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But this is before that passage, and we'll read that one too. But this one is in Genesis chapter 45, verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. Emphasis there. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you sold me. God sent me before 
you to preserve life. And verse 8, it can't be any clearer than this. Verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. God did it. Then in verse, in, in chapter 50, it's, it's a very, very, I'm going to have to turn it away. It's a very famous passage, right? Joseph says, you meant it for evil, and then God meant it for good. And all of us, this is what we hear when we hear that phrase, we, including myself. Right? You were kind of making it evil, and God made it good. So here's my picture, is the brothers sold him into slavery, Potiphar's wife did her deal, he landed in prison, God's allowing this all to happen, he's watching, and then boom, God pops on the scene at the last minute and, and, and enables him to, to interpret dreams, which gives him this high standing. So God saves the day, but that's not what Joseph says. We always go to the evil good. God, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, but let's emphasize the word meant, you meant it, ESV says, intended for evil, and God meant it. Think about that for just a second. God meant for Joseph to go to the pit, to lose his sonship. God meant for him to meet Potiphar's wife. God meant Potiphar's wife to accuse him falsely and land him in prison. He meant that. That's a hard one. Now, just if, if that's a little hard, well, let's go to Job. Trying to convince you here because I'm really just preaching to my, I need to, I need to be convinced of this. this is a hard truth. So Job, think about Job. Where was the suffering coming from in Job's experience? Well, we learn that the wind, you know, came and knocked the, the house down and killed his, some of his sons and daughters. Yeah, so it was the wind. Okay, God controls that. That makes sense. Okay. And then we go on and, and, and then it boils on his flesh. So there's a physical, you know, reality there going on, right? And so God was, okay, I, I, see, I see that. And then how does, how does other sons and daughters die? Remember? The Sabaeans. These people came and pillaged and killed. Well, what was their motive? I mean... They had wills, didn't they? They were people. But God somehow sovereignly and mysteriously used the Sabaeans to take that away from Job. And then there's the issue of Satan. So it's like the book of Job stands up and screams out to everybody, hey, suffering comes from Satan, suffering comes from evil men, and suffering comes from a fallen world. But all of those are from God. All of those are from God. And that's where you need to start as a Christian. When suffering comes into you, whether it's the Hebrews 12 hostility from evil men or it's the boil on your flesh, all of that is sourced from God. That's a hard one. Now, God isn't evil and he doesn't create evil, but God means for things to happen in his sovereignty. Mysteriously, he works it out so that you suffer. So, you hear the words on Sunday morning. God means for you to suffer as a Christian. So what does that mean? That means I'm going to go to God. I mean, if I'm suffering, I'm not going to go to other people. I'm not going to go to, I don't know, some mountain and scream off into the air at nature. Seems kind of crazy. I'm not going to yell at doctors. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to God. And that's exactly where the writer of Hebrews wants you to go. He wants you to go to God. So let's go to God. What is it, God? What are you doing here? 
And the answer comes with what he writes in chapter 12, the first few verses. Oh, I forgot one in Isaiah 10. My, one of my favorite verses to just, just to make me realize what's going on here. Isaiah 10, the Israel, let me set this up. The Israelites were being disciplined by God because they were sinning. And so God comes and he disciplines them. I'm reading from Isaiah 10, verse 5. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. So Assyria is God's rod. The staff in their hands, says Isaiah, is my fury. You see the Assyrians? You see the staff in their hands? That's me coming against you. That's me. Okay, so we're going to God. We're trying to figure out, look, what's going on? And, and once we get into the presence of God, and, and once we beat our breasts, and once we yell and we say, what's going on? And we, we listen, you know what we hear? The soft sound of whisper. This is the words. I've been waiting for you. I'm glad you came to me and not to something else. That's the whole point. Come to me. And this is what he says. I'm a trainer. I'm a doctor and I'm your father. So those three things in Hebrews 12, he tells us, and that is what's going to help us understand what God is up to and why he's doing this. He doesn't tell us everything, obviously. There's faith involved. That's Hebrews 11. But he, he tells us enough. There are some things we need to know. First, let's look at the trainer. Where do we get the word trainer? Well, you look in verse 11 of Hebrews 12, and it says, excuse me, uh, ver verse 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And the word train, you look it up, it's gymnasdo in the Greek. Gymnasdo is an easy word to translate. It sounds just like gymnasium. You know, you train someone athletically. So think of God for a moment as your personal trainer. That's what he is. He's your personal trainer. What does that mean? What's the significance of that? I think what the significance of God being our personal trainer is this. It, it, there's order. There's an order to this. It's not chaos. There's order to it. And, 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 and God is meeting me just at the point where I need to be met to move to the next level. That's what a trainer is doing. And if you think about that, I, I went to Hope's gymnastics class, and she was, I think, three at the time. This was a few years ago. And, uh, and I'm now going to Haley's gymnastics class for the second time. But the first time I went, I was confused. The second time I went, I wasn't so confused. But this is what happened the first time I went. And it, let, me, let me set this up. This is what it costs Dad. It costs me, I think it's 10 or $15 for the hour. It costs me because I have to buy my daughter a leotard. It can't just be any leotard, so we spend all, you know how it is. So we buy the leotard, right? The leotard's on her, and then I have to pack up all this stuff, you know, in the car, and then I have to drive to a special gym. I can't do this in my living room, so I have to go there, and then I have to stay there with my child. I can't just drop them off and leave for an hour. So I have to stay there because they're too young and they need help. So it costs me great, <laughs> greatly, and for, at least for that hour. And, and so I'm sitting there and I'm watching this and, and this is what we did for the hour. You know what we did? The girls ran over and they picked up a handkerchief and they threw it in the air and they watched it come down. Ah! They went over to a ball and they picked up a ball and they dropped it, catch it, dropped it, catch it. 
This is great. And you know, and you know what that did? They had these little things on the ground with little handprints on them. And, and you're supposed to put your hands on it and hop. That's it. That's, oh, let's go do it over here. Okay. And they hop over here and then they go to the handkerchief station. And I'm like, we did this for an hour. And I, at the end of the hour, <laughs> look, I could do this in my garage. I mean, come on. So I went to Coach Becky and I said, you know, what, what's, what's this all about? I mean, is this really gymnastics or is this just fun playtime? You know, because this gymnastics class costs as much as the next level and what's going on. And she, she laughed and she said, you know, I get this all the time. So she sat the parents down. I was in the, among the parents. And, um, and she, she sat us down and she said, I just wanted to explain to you what we did today and how it relates to other parts of gymnastics. Let me just tell you, in three years, sort of, we want your child to stand on the mat and do a backflip. So in, in a certain amount of time, we want your child to stand there, just do a backflip. And we were all like, wow, that's awesome. So we're all calculating, okay, it's going to be around when she's this age or whatever. So we're, we're trying to figure out how are you going to get from this to a backflip in that amount of time? How's that possible? And she says, well, here, let me, let, me, let me show you. When you put your hands on the little things and you hop, well, that gets you to that point. But then the next step, you, 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 know, you put your hand things and you hop higher, see? And, and then you go to the next thing and you put your hands on the thing and there's a wall and you walk up the wall and then you come back down. And then you kind of turn around towards this way in the wall and then you just kind of fling your feet up and do a handstand. Then you learn how to do a handstand on your own. Okay, so the handstand is done. Then what you do with a handstand is you do a handstand and you roll all the way down to stand up on your feet. Then, once you get that down, you do the handstand and you fall. Now, I can never do this because it's a little bridge backwards, you know what I mean, like that. And all the kids do it well. And then after you do, do that, then you learn how to do a round off or cartwheel and then you, you sort of do that. And then you try to get the handspring going. And you got a spotter who comes and spots you, and, you know. And then after the, the back handspring, you do it on your own. Now you could do a, a, you know, a round off to a handspring. Then you do a round off to a backflip. And then you just take the round off off and you can do a backflip. Now, whether that happens in three years or 20 years, I'm not really sure. But you see, she had, a, she had order to things. We were starting in a place to me that looked silly and, and didn't do much. But it was. It was part of a plan that I wasn't aware of. In the same way, God, when he, when he makes you suffer, when he leads you into suffering, when your next step happens to you, just know that from Hebrews 12, God is your personal trainer. And he's got you on this plan. Now you think about it. If an athlete, an athlete from the Olympics were to do Haley's regimen, you know, the little hop thing, it would destroy her as an athlete if that was all that she did. Likewise, if Haley tried to do the Olympic athlete's regimen, it would destroy Haley. So God not only has order, but he meets you right where you are. God knows where you are, and he knows where he wants to take you, and he knows how to get there. That's what's impl implied by this word trainer. Now, here's an attitude adjustment, because this is how I view God, and maybe you do too. Let's say there was a lawyer who just became a partner in a law firm, and the, the other partners looked at him and said, he needs, to, he needs to lose some weight shape up. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to hire a, a, a personal trainer for this lawyer friend. And he gets a memo. It says, Frank, next Thursday you will meet your personal, your personal trainer. She will help you get in shape so you can be more productive um, and healthy as a lawyer. We hope it helps. So when he read it, though, 
he was in a hurry. And he didn't quite read it carefully. And so he misread it, and this is what he read. Frank, next Thursday you will meet your personal secretary. She will help you get it together so you can be a more productive and wealthy lawyer. We hope she helps. Now, can you imagine what that meeting would have been like on Thursday? He's sitting at his desk with a donut, (laughs) you know. She comes in and sweats in a gym bag, and he's like, that's not a secretary, you know, what is this? She comes in, and what does he do? Well, can I have some coffee, please? Before we start, before I start giving you notes, can I, can I have some coffee, please? And the trainer's over here thinking, actually, no, I'm not going to get you any coffee. Besides that, and takes the donut right out of your hand and throws it in the trash can. That would make actually a really good comic sketch. I think it might have been done maybe in I Love Lucy or something like that. But that's how we approach God so often, isn't it? I mean, we think he's there to help us. In fact, God is your personal trainer. And the question I guess we're asking is, are you upset at God for taking the donut out of your hand? That seems a little trivial. But, but is there an emotional response to God? Well, he's your trainer. That's his job. Why is that? Because he's God. And we cannot approach him any other way. So we have to see God's wisdom in suffering or we'll grow weary and faint. Now, he's also a doctor. That's another thing that he's described as being, and that's in verse 12. Uh, It says, strengthen, sorry, strengthen your feeble hands. Let me get back to that. All right, verse 12. uh, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Now, what's the significance of healing? Two things. First, there's power, right? There's power in suffering. Suffering doesn't just hurt us. There's a healing power that makes us stronger and, and, and wiser and more useful to God. So there's that, that part of it. But here's the part that's stuck on me. Where's my sickness? I mean, look, (laughs) This happens to me. I was just fine. And this happens to me. There's no sickness going on here. I mean, if you think about a doctor, like an ER doctor, right? I go outside, I get hurt somewhere, right? And then I go to the doctor and I said, I got hurt out there. You fix me up here. And the doctor says, okay. And he fixes me up and I heal and I get better. But that's not the kind of doctor or the kind of healing that's being described in Hebrews 12, is it? No, I'm perfectly fine. And the doctor lays me down and said, ha, you're perfectly fine. I'll see about that. There's a tumor right here. And so I'm going to get my knife and I'm going to cut you to get the tumor out. You see, that's the surgeon kind of doctor. And that's the kind of healing going on. So the question, it begs the question, where's my sickness, oh God, that you have to present to me suffering in order to be healed? What kind of tumor do I have sitting in my spiritual body? Well, if you read 12 verse 1, it'll help understand. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. The NIV says entangles, which is good. I think that's a great way to... But this one in the ESV says clings so closely. Maybe has a different nuance. It's so close I can't see it, (laughs) right? 
Isn't sin, one of the attributes of sin, deception? Rarely do you ever see a sin that's honest. It's always deception is involved somewhere. So we're the last people to diagnose ourselves. That's the point here. We're the last person to actually look and say, oh, look at that idol I've been carrying around for 40 years. It's time to take it off. And you throw it away. Okay, now I'm going to run the race with endurance. It doesn't work like that. And God knows it. And in his wisdom, he knows one of the only things that'll get your attention to an idol or to a sin that clings so closely is suffering. Isn't that true? When, when you suffer, <laughs> things come to the surface that you've kept hidden. That you may not say or do right here in this church. But when you suffer, all of a sudden, sin becomes so clearly visible in your own life. God uses that to identify sin. See, the suffering isn't because of your character flaws. It's to reveal your character flaws. That's, that's surprising to me. C.S. Lewis tells how to find rats in your cellar. You ever hear this? It's a great story. You know, this is the way not to. This is the way I do it because I don't want to hire anybody to kill the rats because I don't want to spend money on it. So I go to the cellar door and I knock really loudly. I open the door loudly. I turn on the light. I stomp down the stairs. Ta-da! No rats. Right? You can't approach sin that way, can you? No. You can't because it'll hide. So what God does is he surprises you. Totally off guard. And there's the sin right there before you. So when you suffer, there's a purpose, there's an order. You're getting stronger, you're getting disciplined, but also you're getting healed of the sin that leads to death. Now, there's one more thing that it means, and it is father. Father, that's the first two things, and then the third one's father. This one's interesting. Loving father. That's, that's what it says. Let's read the text. It's, it's right in there in verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, there it is, and chastises every son whom he receives. So that's great encouragement. You're getting disciplined because he loves you. He wants to do this for you. So there's a difference between a son and a slave. Or, as Hebrews 12 says, if you're disciplined, you're sons. If you're not disciplined, you're illegitimate sons. Okay, you're not legitimate sons. Now, where do we see that in the Bible? I mean, is there an example that we could probably know? What does an illegitimate son look like? Well, the great story of Abraham and Sarah and how they were waiting for God's promise to be fulfilled through their seed, and they were barren, and they were waiting, and that suffering, one of the sufferings I'm personally aware of, and, 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 they, and they know the suffering there, and they say, well, let's not, let's not wait. Let's, let's go. Let's make this happen. God's timetable's off. So here comes Sarah with Hagar and says, hey, why don't you uh, have a child with Hagar? And that'll be the child that blesses all the nations, as God promised. So that's what Abraham does. The child is Ishmael. Ishmael stands up. Whoops, Sarah's no longer barren. Now she's having a child of her own. Sarah has Isaac. So now we've got Ishmael and Isaac. The stage is set. This is what the difference is between an illegitimate child and a legitimate child. Now, we don't want to put Ishmael down and call him names and mock at him. I mean, that's kind of weird. In fact, God does care for him, makes him a nation. Abraham cares for him. Sarah's really the only one that wants to get rid of him. Uh, but the point is, what actually happens to 
Ishmael. He doesn't inherit. That's what happens. The inheritance goes here to Isaac. So when you're suffering, yes, God loves you. Let that encourage you. But also know you're a legitimate son. And, and I'm, not, I'm looking at the females in here and saying the same word as I am to the males. And, and this, this would be a mistake to say children of God because he uses the word children in another place in Hebrews 12. But in this case, he's saying sons. Like, like Paul is saying, you're adopted as sons. You've heard that before. So you're sons. You're inheriting something from God. You're going to carry on his name into the future. Suffering does that to me? That seems odd, doesn't it? The father-son relationship as it's carried on is a little bit strange when you first think about it. But you see it. And this is where we're going to end. You see it in verse 14. I'm going to start at 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen... Sorry, I need to start at 11. Let's, let's go back. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So there's two things. Peace, righteousness, right? That's what you see there in the text. Peace, righteousness. Uh, who's the peace for? The peace is for other men, everyone, people hurting you. What's the righteousness for? Well, that's your standing before God. Uh, the other word that's used for righteousness here is holiness. Some of your translations might have that. Holiness. And that's actually the word that's used later on in verse 14. Um, but but look, look at 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace, and there's the peace, with everyone. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see that? That's what's been passed on to you. This is the great commission handed off to you. You're, you're suffering so people can see the Lord. You're suffering so that you'll be made holy so that people will see the Lord. Okay, now again, this is a striking concept. If it was the only place where you could see this happening, I would again throw it out. But it's not. Let's go to Second Corinthians. James 1. I commend you to read James 1. That's a great passage, but I think Second Corinthians is a great place to, to conclude our time together this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 4. One of my all-time favorite passages. And we're going to start in 7. It's the jar of clay, famous jar of clay passage. Listen to the words in light of this. God is, he, he, he's making me suffer to make me holy, to spread or proclaim the gospel or, or let people see God or, or display his glory in the world. So let's think about that as we read these verses. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. And you might think jar of clay just means imperfect or weak or ugly or can't sing, you know, those kinds of things, right? Jar of clay. But, but it's not. It means suffering. And how do I know that? Verse 8, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, 
perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body, in the body, not in heaven, on earth, in the body, in this age, the death of Christ, of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus and those who have NIV have the word, those will see the life of Jesus in us. And the ESV says uh, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Since, uh, so death is at work at us, uh, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I speak. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. And this is great verse right here. For it is all, it is all it. What is he talking about? It, the suffering, the being made holy, that kind of thing. So it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving. To what? To what end? The glory of God. All right, that's, his, that's his evangelism plan. Yes, we're to speak the truth. Yes, we're to teach. But yes, we're to suffer. And, and what it is here is just, the, the curtain has just barely been opened to see a glimpse of his plan. I don't know how that all works. And I don't, thankfully, I don't know, I don't have to know. Because guess what? I'm not the trainer. I'm not the doctor. I'm not the father. I'm the son. Now, I'm the son. How many of us have sons who, after we discipline them, say, Dad, thanks, man. That was exactly what I needed. I mean, if you'd have gone one more swat, that'd have been too much. But what you did was just right. Thanks, Dad. No. What son or daughter ever does that? So it's in our nature as sons to rebel against God. But just know that God is our personal trainer and there's order and he meets us at the point of our need to take us where we need to go. God is our doctor. There's power in, in suffering to heal us and to identify for us the sin in our life. And God is our father who loves us and who gives us an inheritance. Let's pray. Verse three, Lord, we remember the words. Consider him. And so God, we look and we consider Jesus Christ. We ask ourselves, where is the greatest suffering in our, in our history? Where is the greatest display of God's glory? And we look at the table with the bread and the wine and we say that is where the greatest suffering happened. And that is where the greatest display of your glory happened. Give us strength to follow. And God, help us as we consider communion about what you did and the elements which you so wisely gave us to remember you. Help us during this time to remember what we need to remember. We pray in Christ's name.